Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So uh, can, can I ask you to just introduce yourself? Um, Ahmed Zawi. I'm uh, a dad of uh, four uh, boys uh, living in New Zealand, in uh, Auckland. And I'm a member of uh, Human, Rights, uh, Fonda- uh, Human Rights Foundation. And we are uh, um, doing a project to uh, improving the situation of uh, Muslims in, uh, in New Zealand. Can I ask you to tell me what your first memories of New Zealand are? Oh, it's a hard question. I steer my, <laughs> my pin. If you've been living in New Zealand for the last 15 years, you will know this man. You might not recognize his voice, but you know his name. When I came to New Zealand, I was very happy because I felt Algeria and I wanted to be far away from discrimination and dictatorship. So when I arrived to uh, airport of uh, Auckland, I was uh, dreamed when I was in Vietnam that some people circulated me and they stopped me and I uh, have uh, I saw on this dream that I arrived on small boat with my son on uh, on uh, on sea, and when I arrived, I. Uh, I amazed though. I was very amazed because I see the airport and the, the water near to the... I said, oh, my dream, it's, uh, it's released. I was happy. And then I meet uh, one policeman, he's a tall man. I said to him, uh, um, I'm a refugee. I wanted to... Um, seeking uh, refugee in New Zealand. He said to me, welcome. I was very happy when he said to me, welcome. And I uh, very amazed about the, this. Uh, and then... Uh, it happened what's, what's happened, the, the bad thing for me. They, uh, they didn't give me any information. They put me in prison. It's, it, it was not uh, good uh, treatment. I didn't get any good treatment when I arrived. Ahmed Zawi arrived in Auckland on the 4th of December 2002, fleeing persecution by the Algerian government. Facing false accusations of terrorism, the authorities detained him for two years. He spent the majority of that alone in a cell. Oh, it's like, uh, like uh, health here and like paradise. In, in uh, paradise because you are, you, uh, you, when you were in uh, isolated place, you can talk to yourself, you become a philosopher. Uh, it arrives to, arrives to me uh, to write uh, some uh, poems. Uh, to talk, to think about what's happening in the world. It's uh, a lot of contemplations. Other, other way, it's because you can't do nothing in prison. You are in your room, you are innocent, you feel that you are innocent and people put you in prison. What's the reason? They can't give me any, any right to, to go to the court or to accuse me. I, I don't know what, what I do. Just I try to keep myself uh, positive and thinking about positive things and uh, praying and asking God to, to solve my problem, and so on. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it. I think it's hard. The prison is not. Uh, no one can say the prison is uh, is a good place or uh, a place of rest. Or, no, it's. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard, mm. and they need to to cover. I till now I didn't cover from this uh, this pen. You haven't you haven't recovered yet. Uh, it's still like uh, like a cicatrice, you know, cicatrice. What you call in like a scar? fresh? Yeah, like scar. Something when you yeah mm. still in your life. When you remember, when you give me the 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 the, the palms, I read it. I become become <laughs> yeah. I, it's it's all right. Yeah. When he was about to be released, hundreds gathered outside the prison with flowers and placards to greet him. Inside, the inmates he spent the last two years with waited by the door and applauded him as he walked out. Oh, I, uh, I started to cry at that time. And uh, I was very excited because inside I uh, become very uh, near to uh, inmates in, in prison. And I was thinking about them. And then also I was surprised because I don't know what will be. The question for the court today is whether the appropriate response is variation of the warrant to enable Mr. Zawi's transfer to the Maungari Centre or release on bail with conditions. We are of the view that bail is the preferable outcome. I'm Mohammed Hassan and this is Public Enemy. Ahmed Zawi's case captured the country's imagination. Whether you thought he was a threat and should be kept in detention, or that New Zealand should welcome him with open arms, it was hard not to take a side. It split families, caused arguments over dinner. The country was asking itself a moral question. But 12 years after he walked out of prison a free man, do Muslims in New Zealand feel any more accepted? Another New Zealand First MP is in trouble tonight for anti-Muslim comments. Richard Pross's call to ban young male Muslims from flying on Western Airlines could trigger international embarrassment. So when the media reported you as calling the Muslim community in New Zealand as a serpent underbelly with multiple heads capable of striking at any time and in any direction, was that misrepresenting? It women wearing full-face veils have a difficult time even catching a bus. The Prime Minister John Key under fire over accusations that he's been scaremongering over so-called jihadi bribes. Earlier on today, he's got a bunch of Wanganui residents, ropeable, after finding anti-Islamic pamphlets in their letterboxes. Now, we, we don't need to go into the details, it's the sort of bollocks you'd expect. Muslim refugees are backward, barbaric, and want to kill us. Ahmed Zawi's case was long and complicated. He landed in New Zealand a year after the September 11 attacks and just two months after the Bali bombings. The Helen Clark government defended locking him up, saying he had links to al-Qaeda, something they later admitted was a mistake. Despite getting out of jail in 2004, he was still on bail, and the secret intelligence services, SIS for short, remained suspicious of him for years and didn't drop his security risk status until 2007. When I got the, the, the passport, I feel that I'm at home and the Netherlands uh, maybe uh, uh, correct their mistake about my, uh, my uh, situation. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's good. It was a good feeling. <laughs> yes, true. Did you feel like the government or the SIS were watching what you were doing sure, at that time? Sure, that's, uh, that's their job. I, I can't, I can't uh, uh, be hostile to, to uh, Sasha. That's, that's their job. They should do it, even maybe now. Do <laughs> you still think they, that you might be monitored? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, legal. No, I'm, I'm not saying 
I'm not saying anything. Mm. I'm not complaining. Yeah. Did you catch that? He still thinks he's being watched. Eight years after his name was cleared and two years after he became a citizen. He's not the only one who feels this way. In 2014, the government passed controversial anti-terror legislation under urgency, allowing SIS to carry out surveillance for 24 hours without a warrant. At the time, there were 80 people on their watch list, 40 who were believed to support Islamic State and the rest needing further investigation. But others say they're being approached by SIS for different reasons. Um, I got a phone call from them. Uh, They said to me, um, well, they identified themselves as the intelligence services and they told me that you're not in trouble, but we want to talk to you about your experiences overseas. So we made a time and place and I met with them in a cafe. This is Adam. We've changed his name and voice to protect his privacy. He's in his 20s, of Middle Eastern background, but born in New Zealand. There were two guys. Should I identify the names or was that? No, probably wasn't their real names anyway. But um, there, there were two guys and um, it wasn't in an intimidating way. It was sort of like, let's sit down and um, have a cup of tea and just like discuss things like friends and stuff. They made it very obvious to me, like in the beginning of the meeting, that essentially they had been watching me because they told me, like, oh, how was your previous experience as so-and-so? And so essentially they wanted to let me know that, you know, we've been surveilling you. And so, yeah. And then how many times did you meet with them? It was more than once, right? Probably about four or five times. In the beginning, it was like at a space of about every two weeks. It was just chats. How are you going? How do you feel about the community? Anything you're worried about? But then they started asking him to do things, including spy on his local mosque and report back. They told him money could be offered under the table. To protect Adam's identity, I can't go into a lot of detail, but the requests increased. And after a while, he started getting freaked out. I said no to them for several of the job offers that they made. Um, But... Towards the end, like, I got the impression that they were sort of starting to harass me. Do you feel like you're still being watched? Yes, but to what degree, I don't know. No, that's the truth. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, they are called the SIS for a reason. Um, I got the impression, again, I have no evidence for this, I think they were just more interested in, um, in just sort of letting me know that they're there. I I don't think they think I'm a terrorist. And I don't think they would have offered me a job if they thought I was a threat. Do you think that there are other people in the community that they would have approached, that they would have been trying to... Oh, no doubt in my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Whether those job offers were as extreme as the ones that I was offered, I don't know. But to spy on the Muslim community, yeah, absolutely. They've got informants in the Muslim community, they're watching. I mean, on one hand, it's like, okay, well, they gotta be aware of, you know, any shady or dodgy ideas that are going around. And so for me personally, it's like, okay, if that's just part of your job in terms of uh, keeping the community safe, that's one thing. The other problem is, is how you guys actually go about doing it. Um, They're always gonna be there. Do you know what I'm saying? 
you know, they, they were, they're watching. But, but if it, Whether you like it or not. But if it was up to you... If it was up to me, absolutely not. I mean, who would? He says the meetings left a lingering suspicion in his mind. Were they still watching him? Were they listening to his phone calls? Was he being followed to work or to the mall? But you might go through an experience and then what happens is your mind latches onto everything. So for, like, I'll give you an example. Um, I was at a shopping mall and, and this really old woman comes up to me and she tells me that my right uh, brake is not working and that that's where all the real accidents happen. And around her neck, she has a two degrees card. Now, in a normal situation, you won't think anything about them. The thing is, I'm on two degrees. So your brain will essentially make an association between the two degrees card that she has around her neck and the fact that you're on two degrees and you can't talk about that with people because then that's... And the truth is, it probably is just paranoia. I don't think now that the whole situation is over, it's nothing. It's, I don't think she was a spy, I don't think it was, but that's what I mean, like, but that usually happens when you start to go through intense experiences with them. If I see that now, I haven't had any intense experiences with them for the last few months, it's nothing. But when you're going through those experiences, your mind feeds off everything. A youth worker in Auckland, Naima Ali, says Adam isn't the only one. That case is not very um, isolated case. There's many cases where the youth were approached, as in they got a call from a SIAS member and they're interested in hearing about someone that they're concerned about. Unfortunately, some of the youth have taken up that offer not knowing what their rights were or um, what they're obliged to say and do. There's one case where there's a youth that's been harassed by SIS because the first time he got a call from SIS, he declined the offer of a coffee and given information about someone that they're concerned about. And so they called again and he said, I'm not interested again. They knocked on his door and asked for him and they couldn't reach him. So they said they'll try again. She says a 14-year-old boy in her neighborhood had SIS officers show up to his house after he posted a message on Facebook saying he wanted to become more religious. In 2015, an ad was printed in a local paper in Wellington calling for Jawasis, spies. SIS confirmed it was recruiting people in the Somali, Arabic and Mandarin-speaking communities. What happened in the Somali community when that ad came out was that there was a lot of hostility between community members, um, especially within youth. Um, we don't know who's taking up that offer. We don't know who's out there um, being an informant, spying on our community. I've been living in Marisk for the past 18 years, and for the last couple of years, there has been a shift in, in the atmosphere of our community. Um, I would say SIS have plagued our community because the youth feel a sense of isolation, uh, mistrust within their own community. They feel that there's, there's a big gap between our community and the youth right now and nobody is willing to build that bridge. Other community leaders told me the same thing. One said there was a large number of Muslims approached and asked to be informants between 2009 and 2011, with a few reporting feelings of harassment and suspicion. However, the Federation of Islamic Associations in New Zealand, or FIANS, the country's biggest Muslim body, says while they and other community leaders 
are in regular contact with SIS, they've never been told that members of the public are being approached. If it is happening, it's not happening with their knowledge or permission. Fian says that's disturbing and they want answers. I contacted SIS to see if this was true. Their director, Rebecca Kitteridge, wasn't available to answer questions, but they sent me this statement. We wouldn't comment on specific cases, individuals or methods. A number of agencies in New Zealand, including New Zealand Police and NZSIS, have responsibility for maintaining New Zealand's security, as well as identifying and advising around risks to national security. Agencies work closely with communities to build partnerships and ensure open and constructive dialogue. I pressed them further about whether they do use informants and whether people in the community were offered money in exchange for information. They wouldn't say. But according to New Zealand terror expert Paul Buchanan, there's no doubt in his mind mosques around the country have been infiltrated. So, there's an appearance of community outreach, but it's clearly not working. 21-year-old Karush lives in Auckland and says while he hasn't been approached by SIS, some of his friends have. I have a lot of innocent friends that actually wouldn't even harm a fly, to be honest, you know, and they've been approached and... um, yeah, man, like doing that to people who can't even harm a fly, that could lead them honestly to do something, you know, that would just make them fed up or something like that, you know. Do you think it has a negative effect on the, the way the Muslim community is able to live in New Zealand? Yeah, I think, um, so, you know, for some people, you know, the faith is strong, they keep their faith and, you know, they, they never leave it. But for some people who can just re- reach a tipping point, you know, they might even uh, lose their faith or they might just be bit more careful to, to be open with their faith, you know. So, I mean, and that's not good, you know. New Zealand is a free country, is a democracy, you know. We should be um, allowed to express any faith that we like, you know. Mahad Yusuf, another student from Auckland, agrees. He says it's becoming hard for Muslims to express their faith publicly. Instead, they constantly feel the need to police themselves and their reactions. If he posts an angry response to something in the news, someone could be watching and misunderstand. You know, when I when I walk in my khamis or when I walk down in my Islamic clothes down the road and I'm proud to be a Muslim, I walk down and I say I'm Muslim to everybody, but the looks I get and people swearing and, you bloody pig, yeah, you know, just being violent and they're the ones who are actually being violent and being rude and being oppressive towards us. But really, on the media, we're made to look like we're the ones who are causing the oppression and we're the ones that are violent and we're the ones that just want to be negative towards the world when it's nothing like that. What's the worst thing you've had someone say to you? Uh, Bloody nigger or bloody Muslim, you know, don't blow us up or, you know... ISIS, but I don't know, man. People are delusional to me these days, you know. And in, in some ways, I just keep to myself, you know, to avoid drama and problems. Cause trying to show them the other side of Islam and try to show other side of us, Af- my African culture, you know. And I'm just trying to spread peace and love and unity, and you know, make the world a better place, mm. step by step. But yeah, people have some really negative mentalities, you know, and they think us Muslims are just. I don't know, Islamophobia is real. While the police don't collect data about the ethnic backgrounds of victims of assault, they say there has been a spike recently in anti-Muslim attacks in the Mount Roskill area. Two women have a full bottle of coke thrown at them from a moving car. Another girl has her hijab yanked off in the street. The spokesperson for the Islamic Women's Council, Anjam Rahman, 
says things had calmed down in the late 2000s, but in the last few years had gotten worse. With the rise of ISIS and along with um, international events around Brexit, around American elections and so on, the level of harassment has increased again and we know that um, it's especially worse for Muslim women because they tend to be a lot more visible, especially the ones that are wearing hijab. I've had instances of both my daughters actually being accosted at bus stops when they're waiting for a bus and recently my younger daughter also, this person went on the same bus as, as her and then entered her place of work and further continued to harass her and she found that experience really quite scary and she felt that she wasn't able to respond to it because of personal safety issues. She didn't want to engage with the person in case things would escalate. What do these instances of harassment do for young people, young Muslims living in New Zealand? I think, you know, especially those that are born and brought up here, it makes them feel like they're not part of society, it makes them feel like they're not welcome, and because they are Kiwis, just as other Kiwis, it it really is difficult for them to deal with that kind of issue. I think for people that have migrated or come as refugees, they possibly, you know, come knowing that they will be seen as outsiders, but for people that have grown up here, they aren't outsiders. Um, And to be treated as such, I think, is really harmful to their well-being as well as for the rest of the country. The young people I spoke to around New Zealand told me they felt constantly under suspicion because of the way they look and the religion they practice. Sometimes things were small, an offhand comment, a lingering stare, to remind them they were different. Adam also mentioned something else to me when we met. The other thing that I'd really love to stop is being held in the airport for three hours every time I come in. How many times has that happened? Is is it like a few times? Every single time I come into New Zealand since I was about 14. Mm. They'll stop me, they'll ask me questions, they'll open my bag, they will write down... uh, on a piece of paper, every single thing that they find. It's not the first time I've heard this. Back in June, I interviewed 15 people, all Muslim, who said they were stopped, searched and questioned for hours at Auckland Airport, like I was when I landed in LAX. Except I was a foreigner in the US, and these were New Zealanders. Both Customs and the Minister for Customs dismissed claims of racial profiling, saying there's no way to determine a person's religion from a passport. But for people like Abdus Salam and his wife, the reality feels different. Actually, it was last year in the winter of New Zealand. We came, me and my wife, and they stopped us at the airport, the customs. We stayed there for like four hours, and they checked everything, our bags. They checked each piece separately. And my wife was pregnant early stages, so... She was so tired, exhausted. Actually, they opened our telephones and they checked the pictures and, you know, we're Muslim. There are some pictures for covered ladies that we cannot show to other men. I told them we need a lady to come and check if you want, if you're insisting to check them. So why do you think you were stopped? I don't know. (laughs) I have to ask them. Did they explain to you at all? At all. They said it's for routine check. So I don't know if that applies to everybody who's coming to New Zealand or it's just us. I don't know. I need answers for these questions, really. 
because I think it's kind of I don't know discrimination or because we don't deserve that four hours staying in the airport and we had that long trip somebody got to explain that the government is now considering a proposal to allow its information gathering agency the GCSB to spy on New Zealanders in some cases giving them access to phone conversations emails and browsing history which they currently collect on mass but aren't lawfully allowed to check it's also thinking about combining the agency with SIS raising fears about whether this will give the agencies too much power back in 2013 a report into the GCSB found it spied on 88 people in cases that wouldn't hold up in court all of this worries no one more than the muslim community in 2014 fians told parliament they hadn't been consulted on the anti-terror bill and their calls to meet with the prime minister had been ignored they were worried the muslim community would be unfairly targeted i know that officially we've been told that there isn't any religious profiling but a lot of anecdotal evidence by people who are traveling of being stopped um more than they think should be necessary so i think there's there's two issues one that there needs to be transparency and secondly that there needs to be fairness in the way this is all dealt with one thing that we've always been clear about is that we're absolutely concerned with the safety of all new zealanders and our community comes under that category of all new zealanders um one of the suggestions that we put forward is maybe for the government to have like an advisory council or an advisory board um that they can consult around um these sorts of issues we need practical and long-term solutions we need engagement we need to make sure that we're looking at prevention in the long term and that we have you know a long-term plan and strategies in place and it's really important that government and the community are both equally part of that process and a context of mutual respect and mutual understanding over the last few weeks i met muslims in the us australia and here in new zealand and heard their stories they told me about the growing sense of dread they feel about how they their families and their friends are seen in the public eye that they're labeled as enemies before they get a chance to speak that the word terrorist is something they now carry with them everywhere they go whether in an airport terminal or a job interview i can relate to that as a kid i watched a woman swear at my mom in the car park go back to where you came from she said i watched strangers stare and frown at my sister wearing the hijab in the mall on the day of the sydney siege My colleagues at work looked at me like they'd seen a ghost. It was chilling. I started this podcast to help people understand what it's like to be a Muslim in this environment full of fear and suspicion 15 years after 9/11. But also for Muslims to help them know that they're not going through this alone. سيعود المنتظر حتى متى انتظر رأيت الطيف في قرية معزولة وفي أدغالها الكثيفة أرتجل وبينما أنا أركب برها وبحرها وأملأ نفسي من جمالها ناداني عجوز كبير كأنه الحطب When Ahmed Zawi was in jail he wrote poetry lots of it about what he was going through It's beautiful as it is haunting This poem He will come back the one I'm waiting for was named the most important poem of 2004 
This is Ahmad reading it. It goes something like this. In the dream I am traveling. I am walking in a beautiful forest. Suddenly a man calls out to me. He's a woodsman. He recognizes me as a stranger and reaches to shake my hand. I am delighted, thinking we are friends. But he stares at me, rigid like wood. He takes spectacles from his pocket and peers more closely. You are a foreigner, he says. I accuse you. You will die, but it will have nothing to do with me. He glares at me again, his face a grimace. Don't worry, he says. We will prepare for you a coffin and a shroud. Miraculously then, birds appear. They surround the woodsman and sing, leave him alone. He is of the people. He is the liberator. Let him go. But the axeman shouts, he is a liar. Hear me, people. He is a liar. He must die. I wake up from the dream on notes of music. My love hears my cries of fear. Will I return? Will I return? She answers, yes. You will come back like the migrating bird traveling always home. We will pick dates together when the sun shines and showers make rainbows. Then I scream. I am racked with pain and tears, my body in agony, my mind a cauldron of fire. But when will I return? How long must I wait? How long? How long? This episode of Public Enemy was produced by me, Mohammed Hassan, for RNZ. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our engineer is Jeremy Ansel. A massive thank you to all the people who shared their stories with us over this series, and to Nataonga for the Zawi Supreme Court audio. You can find us online at rnz.co.nz, on iTunes, and on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate us on iTunes. It goes a long way. And tell a friend or two. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.